0: Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that as we look at it this evening that your Holy Spirit would guide our thoughts, help us, Lord, to learn from that word and apply it to our lives, that we might live lives that are worthy of the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, prayer, it's something that we, uh, we all engage in from time to time, uh, especially when the circumstances of life seem to go beyond beyond our control. But apart from that, prayer really it seems to be a bit of a struggle. Uh, we find it hard to actually set time aside to pray. And what do we pray for? Uh, do we pray for Aunt, Auntie Flo's short, sore foot? Uh, or for good weather for our picnic? Or perhaps for safe travel? In wartime, um, was or is it right to pray for victory? And uh, if so, what about Christians on the other side? How about a prayer chain? For people's requests um, is that a good idea what do we pray for when our friends are out of work or ill and I take it here that the uh, James chapter 5 verse 14 is not referring specifically to uh, sickness physical sickness uh, what is God is God really the journey of the lamp that we can just bowl up take our prayers to him and uh, his power is at our disposal and only if we pray enough then he will answer is that what it's about well, we're looking at Solomon's prayer tonight, um, and uh, like the Lord's prayer in the New Testament, that will actually help us answer some of these questions and discover the basis uh, and the focus of true biblical prayer. But uh, firstly, we need to actually understand where we are in the Bible's unfolding revelation. Uh, that's important, or we, we, we could well get led astray by what the people are praying for. So uh, in the next couple of minutes, we're going to go through the whole Bible. So see how we go. So the Bible's made up of three parts, with a prologue and an epilogue. So the prologue is Genesis 1 to 11, and the first part or the first stage is uh, the historical development of the kingdom in, uh, of Israel. Um, That's Abraham to Solomon. So that's God's kingdom in history. And here we find all the concepts necessary for uh, understanding the nature of God's true kingdom, of which the historical kingdom is only just a shadow. And, of course, uh, it all goes pear-shaped. And so the second stage is the prophets. They take all the concepts that were developed in the historical kingdom and they project them into the future for a far more glorious kingdom because it was never God's intention that the historical kingdom should succeed. Uh, And so they're they're pointing to a a more glorious kingdom that is still coming. The third stage is that all the concepts of God's kingdom are fulfilled in Christ. Christ fulfills all of those uh, those concepts that we find in in that first stage. Uh, And then we have the epilogue, which is Revelation, specifically Revelation 21 and 22, which brings it right back to Genesis 1 and 2. So that's the Bible. Okay, so our passage that we're looking at tonight, which is uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, verses 20 through, through to 30, 30, uh, 66, um, that, that passage is at the end of stage 1. That is the, the climax of the historical kingdom. Um, with its physical temple and anointed king, both of which are a shadow, which is the term that Hebrews uses, the book of Hebrews uses that. They're a shadow of the true kingdom that's coming. Of um, the, 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 the physical temple is a shadow of the true temple. Uh, the, 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 the king in the historical kingdom is a shadow of the true king, who is Jesus, the anointed king. And that's where we'll actually find where to focus our prayers. So we'll look first then at, at uh, those involved in uh, chapter 8, verses 20 through to 22 to 24. Um, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the entire community of Israel. He lifted his hands toward heaven and he prayed, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in all of heaven above or on the earth below. You keep your covenant and show unfailing love to all who walk before you in wholehearted devotion. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. You made that promise with your own mouth and with your own hands you have fulfilled it today. So what we have here in that first verse is Solomon. He's the anointed king, the one who is a shadow of the Christ and he prays then as the people's representative. We also have there uh, this particular day the house of the Lord. It's the symbol of his presence and it was completed and the people are gathered there for the dedication which Jody talked about last week and that's the high point of the Old Testament because there we have God's people in a place that God had set apart for them under his rule exercised by his anointed king and in his presence. That is the high point. Uh, unfortunately, only lasted two more chapters before uh, it all went south. Um, but we also have the, the, the trustworthy and incomparable God who had fulfilled his word spoken to David, again in verses 23 and 24. O God, oh God of Israel, there is no God like you in all of heaven above or on the earth below. You keep your covenant and show unfailing love to all who walk before you in wholehearted devotion. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. You made that promise with your own mouth and with your own hands. You have fulfilled it today. So uh, he is the God then, the trustworthy, incomparable God who had fulfilled his word spoken to David. God's hand was in the building, fulfilling his promise made to David that he made back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And he involves his servants in what he's doing. You see, God could quite easily, when he, when, when he created this world, he just spoke and it was so. He could have done the same with this house, but he doesn't. He involves his servants in doing it. And so they had built this, uh, this, this building, and uh, uh, actually, God actually involves us in, in his prayer. That's what, one of the things that prayer is about. It's actually about doing what God is, is doing and preaching the gospel. Uh, he involves us in doing that. But the Old Testament then was the, the, the king and temple were fulfilled in Jesus, our anointed king and God. And, and as Solomon was praying for his people as the anointed king of God, so Jesus prays for us. As one John reminds us, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. So our King prays for us also. And uh, Jesus himself had come to fulfil the promises of his Father. Uh, In John 17, verse 4, he says that he had completed all the work that his Father gave him to do. In Acts 3.18, we read that God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah that he must suffer these things. So it was. everything is happening according to God's um, purposes. And God keeps his word. That is the thing we take from this, that God is a trustworthy God. He keeps his word. When he says he's going to do something, it actually happens. He does it. And that's a tremendous encouragement for us because he has promised that he who, he who began the good work within us will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. And that is a great comfort, a great comfort because we cannot lose our salvation in Christ. Uh, it is always there. So that's, what, that's the picture. That's the scene. Everyone's sort of gathered together with Solomon and the house is there um, and the people are there as Solomon prays. Now, the basis of Solomon's prayer, which is uh, our main point here, or one of our main points, the basis of prayer you find in verses 25 to 30. Um, and now, O Lord God of Israel, carry out the additional promise you made to your servant David, my father. For you said to him, if your descendants guard their behavior and faithfully follow me as you have done, one of them will always sit on the throne of Israel. Now, God, now O God of Israel, fulfill this promise to your servant David, my father. So in those two verses, we find Solomon's prayer is shaped by the promises of God. The promise of the house was fulfilled. Uh, But he made other promises. He he promised that there would always be a son of David on the throne. That was an unconditional promise, but it was also conditional in one sense. It was a conditional on the obedience of the king. And in that sense, it pointed to the greater son of David, who was Jesus. So in stage three, uh, Solomon is the one who is the son of David on the throne. But his obedience only lasted, as I said, two more chapters. You, you, you get to chapter 10 and you have all the glory of Solomon, wonderful glory. But in chapter 11, it all goes bad. You had all these wives and concubines and so forth, and they turned his head away from God. So it was not a, a, a permanent thing in that first stage. But his prayer is based on the faithfulness of God in fulfilling his promises, promises that had been fulfilled in his experience in the present and became the base for his future hope. Uh, Matthew Henry uh, was a famous uh, Bible commentator back in the, the 18th century, and he says, God's promises must be both the guide of our desires and the ground of our hopes and expectations in prayer. So our prayer, we, in prayer, then, we are looking to the promises of God and using those as the basis of our prayer. And so authentic biblical prayer is only possible due to God's promises and faithfulness. It's not based on what we would like or what we would think as a fair thing. The second thing that uh, forms the basis of our prayer, apart from God's promises, is God's accessibility. How can we know that we would actually li- he will listen to us He's the almighty God, the creator of the universe and judge of all the world. Will he listen to us? Uh, he's not our next door neighbor. We're not worthy people. He says, well, you're worthy. I'll listen to you. No, it's not like that. Um, God, God has said how, uh, said, said how we ought to approach him. And in the time of Solomon, it was through the house. The house was not built to contain God. <clears throat> Pardon me. God does not dwell in a house made with hands. Uh, And yet, funny, when you're in Latin America, you find most of the churches are called temples, and it's regarded as a holy place. But that was only in the Old Testament. It shows they don't really understand the Bible. Um, The Bible says that God cannot be contained in a building. Um, But what he he did say was his name would dwell there. So God would put his name in that house in uh, verse 29. He said, well, actually, Solomon says in verse 27 and 28, he said, will God really live on earth? Where even the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple, this, this house that you've built. Nevertheless, listen to my prayer. Um, so in verse 29, may you watch over this house night and day, this place where you have said, my name will be there. May you always hear the prayers I make towards this place. May you hear the humble and earnest requests from me and your people, Israel, when we pray towards this place. Yes, hear us from heaven where you live. And when you hear, forgive. So his name will dwell there. God is accessible through his name. That name was given to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. Um, if you've got an old James, King James version, it's Jehovah. If you've got a new Bible, it'll be the Lord with capitals, small capitals. Uh, or if you've got a more a modern version, it'll be Yahweh or something. So whatever you like, that's the name that God gave uh, to the people so that they could call on him. They could call on the name of the Lord. And as Joel chapter 2, verse 32 tells us, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, God will hear their prayers. Uh, He will listen. And when when he's talking about his name, it means his character, his attributes. Um, That's what he's like. Uh, That's what's summed up in his name and you pray towards the temple, that is in accordance with his character and purpose of what's summed up in his name. Any other way to try and access God uh, via religion with uh, special people, special buildings, special rituals, by uh, good deeds and so forth is actually impossible since the fall. When, When Adam and Eve were cast out of the presence of God, the only way back is for God to make that way himself. And so God's name now dwells in this house, and so we pray toward it. Uh, No value in the bricks and mortar themselves, only what it symbolized, because that was the way that was chosen by God. Um, The the Israelites actually fell into that trap. They started to think that that there was something in the temple itself uh, that was holy. And so uh, Jeremiah had to tell them in Jeremiah chapter 7, don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. They, They chant, the Lord's temple is here, the Lord's temple is here but you're going into exile anyway. It's not going to do you any good. And so true prayer is only possible when, where, and how God chooses. Jesus is the new living temple jody's been talking about that that he is the one who replaces the temple uh access to god is only by coming to jesus There's no one can approach god apart from through jesus and so prayer is now possible in his name in jesus name but that means according to god to, according to jesus purposes it's not a blank check another interesting thing we found in chile is that many pastors there buy a lottery ticket and think that they can pray for a win Uh, No, it doesn't work that way. It's not what we want. It's not a blank check check to do what you like. Uh, But God will listen. That's what Solomon says in verse 30. Um, God will listen and he will forgive. So we listen and forgive when his people pray in the way that he directed toward that place, toward his house. And so forgiveness then is a fundamental response to all our prayers. We are all sinners approaching God and he is holy. Prayer then is a gift from God, not a human right. And we need to remember to whom we pray. He's not the genie of the lamp ready to make our life more comfortable or fulfil our wants or whatever it is. So we come then to God. The basis of our prayer is the promises of God and his accessibility. We can reach him. He will listen. Now when we come to the focus of prayer, um, there's a, a big section there. We're not going to read it all from verse 31 through to verse 51 of, of, uh, of 1 Kings chapter 8. But there are seven situations there that God's people would face in the land. And the focus of their prayer, focus of the prayer of Solomon is how will they then live in the land and when will they call on the name of the Lord? How will they honour his name as he fulfils his promises of grace and redemption that he made to Abraham and Moses as he established his kingdom? We could sum it up by saying, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Reminds us of a New Testament prayer. But the the prayer to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, it's basically blessing and peace. I will bless you and make you famous and and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. That's the basic promise and that guides everything that's happening in the rest of the Bible. But also in Moses, God remembers the promise that he made to Abraham and then he calls Moses. And in Moses, we find in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, redemption, they'll be God's special possession, they'll be a holy priesthood. It says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. Uh, Solomon reminds himself of that in verses 52 and 53, where he says, May your eyes be open to my requests and the requests of your people Israel. May you hear and answer them whenever they cry out to you. For when you brought our ancestors out of Egypt, O sovereign Lord, you told your servant Moses that you had set Israel apart from all the nations of the earth to be your own special possession. So, the situations here then, what do they uh, include? Well, basically, they reflect the warnings that you find in Leviticus chapter 26. Uh, they're all reflected in these prayers here, and they focus on on Israel keeping the covenant, the promises they made to God, and living in the land as God's people. Even the foreigner is included, as per the promise to Abraham, uh, where he says there that uh, uh, all the families of the earth will receive a blessing uh, through Abraham. Um, to come into the presence of God means to repent. And we've done that with our confession tonight. We pray for God's mercy. Hence, the response is always on forgiveness as one of the first things we need. And the situations there include disputes in verses 31 and 32, defeat by the enemy because of their sin, verses 33 and 34, drought, verses 35 and 36. And that will come back into, into uh, Elijah's prayer much later in the book. Uh, famine, pestilence, sickness, enemies and so forth in verses 37 to 40. The foreigner that dwells in the land will, will be counted as one of them, verses 41 to 43. Uh, when they're in battle with their enemies, verses 44 and 45. And then the national disaster when they're taken into exile because of their sin in verses 46 to 51. So they're, all the, the, they're basically situations where Israel has sinned and their, their prayer will be for for God's forgiveness. They will repent. And we'll see more about that as we go on. Verses 31 and 32 is uh, uh, about the disputes where God will judge and vindicate the innocent person and condemn the guilty. The presence of the foreigner indicates the fulfilment of the promise to Abraham. Um, and there have been various uh, indications of that on the way through. You might remember uh, Rahab, uh, was not an Israelite. The Gibeonites joined the group. Ruth um, was another one, a Moabites. Uh, also, even Caleb was a Kenizzite, probably descended from Esau. Uh, and it leads up to the great promise of Isaiah that the mountain of the Lord's house will be the most important place on earth, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways. And we'll walk in His paths. So it looks forward to the time when uh, Jesus is the King, and the gospel message goes out to all the nations. But all the other this, all the other um, topics of prayer in this particular passage are warned about in Leviticus 26 as a result of failing to live in God's land as God's people. Uh, that is because of sin. In uh, verse 30, uh, 46, it says, "If they sin against you, and who has never sinned? Um, we all sin." And so in the first stage, or the shadow of the kingdom, they were sinning. Hence, their praying involves repentance. In verses 33, 35, and 47, they are repenting. They're praying toward the temple. They're calling on the name of the Lord, and they mean to change their conduct. And here there is a promise in, in, a, in every, sec, every um, section there, God will hear in heaven, and he will respond in a way that will change things on earth. So being forgiven means that the cause of the problem has been dealt with by repentance and prayer and God will put things right. And so God's forgiveness also involves teaching his people how to live in verse 36, teach them to follow the right path and also in verse 40, to fear God. Uh, In verse 40, then they will fear you as long as they live in the land you gave to our ancestors. So forgiveness involves teaching us how to live, how to live a life that is pleasing to God. We have examples of prayer in the New Testament. Just some of them, Ephesians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, John 17, Jesus' prayer. Both Paul and Jesus show that the focus of prayer is not our earthly desires or comfort, but God's purposes in the world and our life as members of his kingdom. That is, we pray for our growth in holiness, in our being conformed to the image of Jesus, his son, so that forgiveness is still an appropriate response, unless we think we're already perfect. Uh, we have the general confession, and that includes doing and uh, not doing what we should be doing, not just doing the bad things, but the things that we're missing out on. And so the focus in prayer in the Old Testament and the New Testament is hallowed be your name and your kingdom come, the fulfilment of the gospel. The prayers in the time of drought and pestilence applied to the first stage. It was an earthly kingdom where none of these afflictions would apply if the people were obedient and glorified God's name. Um, in Deuteronomy 7, the land, if they were obedient, the land would be productive and there would be no sickness. But of course they weren't. In our third stage, the stage when Jesus is the king, uh, the true kingdom, not of this earth, the just judge will vindicate the person who lives by faith in Jesus. He is the righteous one. Why are we righteous? Because we are forgiven in Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness. And I'm using the version of the um, English Standard Version here. I think it's better than the other one you've got. Uh, It says, You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Um, Jesus is our righteousness, right? I can't plead my own righteousness. you only got to ask my wife. Um, I've nothing to plead. But Jesus is my righteousness. I can plead his righteousness. That's why God can look upon me and say, come into my presence, because I am righteous in his sight, not because I am, but because Jesus is my righteousness. Uh, he took my sin upon himself, and he put his righteousness on me. Um, And he's blessed me then with all spiritual blessings in him. And so all God's responses to prayer advance his purposes for his people. Um, In Romans 8, 28 and 29, all things are working together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. And that purpose is that we become conformed to the image of Jesus. That is his purpose. And his purpose for the world is, as he says in Ephesians 1, Verse 10, at the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. And so our part then is to work out our salvation in fear and trembling as God is at work within us to give us the willing and the doing. And uh, in Philippians two twelve and 13, it says, Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is even more important Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So our prayers should focus on that. So, do we still pray for Auntie Flo's sore foot? Do we pray for success in exams? Do we pray for no rain on our picnic or safe travel? Well, yes, if we like. But God, uh, we can make those petitions to the Lord, but he has made no promise. It reminds me of that hymn, um, When Peace Like a River Attendeth My Way. It was written by a guy called Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was an elder in his church, a very devout man uh, in Chicago. And uh, in 1873, he decided that his family needed a bit of a break. He couldn't go. He was too busy. So he packed his wife and four daughters. He'd already lost a son. Uh, He packed them off on a boat to England. Uh, That boat collided with another one and all hands went down. The boat went down and he lost four daughters. His wife was saved, but he lost four daughters and he wrote that hymn. Um, Obviously, his prayers for his family on their travelling were not fulfilled as he would have liked. Uh, But God is in control. Jesus had his prayers. He had his petition. He said, in Gethsemane, Lord, if it's possible, may this cup of bitterness that I'm about to drink, may it be taken from me, but yet it's not what I want, it's what you want. Paul also had his uh, petition to God. He said, Lord, look, I've got this thorn in the side, it, it's hindering my work. Um, you know, could you please heal me, take it away? Uh, and God says, no, no, this will be so that you don't get a big head. My grace is sufficient for you. You'll wear it. Um, so God has made no promise that He will answer those petitions in the in the affirmative. We can make them, but we don't know what the result will be. But in the light of eternity they're not important. They can be trivial. In the light of, of, of eternity, to lose four daughters may sound well, when you lose four daughters it might might not be trivial at the time. But in the light of eternity it is because he'll be reunited with them. Um, God hears and, and cares. When when we do pray those prayers, God hears and cares. In Philippians 4 and in 1 Peter chapter 5, we are told they're not to be anxious, but to make our requests known to God. And God will answer for our good. So he will answer those prayers, but it won't, may not be exactly what we, uh, want to, what we would like at the time. But he has that promise that all things will work together for our good, and that's how he will answer those prayers. That's how he did with Paul. Um, Paul, he said, no, you'll get a big head if I take it away from you. I won't. My grace will be sufficient for you. So our prayers then in all situations should focus on repentance and forgiveness, on patient endurance, on glorifying God in the circumstances in which he has placed us, on being conformed to the image of Jesus. That is, petitions that are related to the gospel and the consummation of all God's purposes. So that then brings us to the result of prayer in verses 54 through to 66. So, blessing. Um, when Solomon finished making these prayers and petitions to the Lord, he stood up in front of the altar of the Lord, We had been kneeling with his hands raised toward heaven. He stood and in a loud voice blessed the entire congregation of Israel. So the anointed king at that time is blessing his people. And blessings are a greatly misunderstood concept. Um, he's blessing them with the blessing promised to Abraham, basically, um, in verse 55 there when he prays. Um, and that promise to Abraham through Christ is, becomes, comes to us. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham, Galatians 3.14. So our king has blessed us with these spiritual blessings. And then in verse 56, he he praised God, he blessed God, Uh, he praised or thanked God. And that's an important part of our prayer, to thank God for fulfilling his promises. Here he's fulfilling his his promise to Moses, uh, based on the promise to Abraham, uh, as was the promise to David. And so God's blessing then is summed up in rest in uh, verse 56. He has given rest to his people, Israel. Now, rest was something that God did in creation. He rested on the seventh day. Uh, Israel was told to remember that day when God rested by resting themselves. And uh, it it, it continues right through the whole of the scriptures. Uh, Rest is actually another way of saying fellowship with God. That's the great blessing. Um, Their enemies will be cursed. And so they're at peace with God in fellowship with him. Uh, and so in the time of Solomon, rest was given in the land, but it was short-lived. Uh, in 1 Kings 4, he had every, every Israelite was under his vine and his, his fig tree, enjoying the fruits of the land and having rest, but that rest didn't last. And it was eventually lost, as, as uh, David says in Psalm 95, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. And so they did not enter the rest. They had rest, just a fleeting glimpse of it, but then it went. They lost it because of their sin. And so the, prom- the, the promise the prophet sent come back and they say, uh, yeah, we'll look forward now to the true rest that, that is coming. There is still a true rest that is promised. And um, in Isaiah 11, verse 10, uh, we find there, and once again I'll change this one because it didn't use the word rest in your version, but it's there in the original. Um, in that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be a glorious place. And so rest is still the place that we're looking forward to. And it's found in Jesus in uh, Matthew 11:28, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. That's not a hammock he's offering. Um, and that rest still remains to be entered. In uh, in Hebrews chapter 4 verses 8 to 11 uh, we find there that uh, if Joshua had succeeded in giving him this rest God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come so there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God for all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labours just as God did after creating the world so let us do our best to enter that rest but if we disobey God as the people of Israel did we'll fall So what does true rest for God's people involve? Well, it involves the presence of God. Verse 57 um, of 1 Kings chapter 8. Uh, It says, May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us or abandon us. So the presence of God is there, symbolised there in the first stage by the house where his name dwells, but with its fullest expression in Jesus. Uh, We said this before in our our confession. Uh, God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. His name was Emmanuel, God with us, uh, now present through his Holy Spirit, but we'll experience his presence fully in the new creation, in the epilogue in Revelation 21, verse 3. God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. So rest involves the presence of God. It also involves hearts. Uh, inclined to obey God in verse 58. May he give us the desire to do his will in everything and obey all the commands, decrees, and regulations that he gave our ancestors. So it's a work of God. Once again, uh, there be read for us uh, Jeremiah 31, the word of God will be written on our hearts. In Ezekiel 36, God will take the stony heart out of us and give us a, a heart of flesh, a heart that will be obedient to God. Uh, and that will also be fulfilled in Christ in Romans six seventeen. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. Um, verse 59. And may these words that I have prayed in the presence of the Lord be before him constantly day and night, so that the Lord our God may give justice to me and to his people Israel according to each day's needs. And so God will put things right for his people as a result of hearing their prayers he will justify them because of jesus in verse 60 his purposes will affect the whole world then people all over the earth will know that the lord alone is god and there is no other uh, the foreigner will be there being the first fruits there will be salvation for some but all will know that the lord is god uh, and philippians 2 verses 10 and 11 uh, makes that quite clear um At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So blessing then extends to proclaiming the gospel. And verse 61 then is an exhortation that we receive the blessing expressed by being at peace with God and shown by obedience to his word. And so the other result then is joy. We have rest and we have joy in the kingdom of God. As seen in verses sixty two to sixty six, a joy that was short lived, as was only the shadow of things to come. In verses sixty two to sixty four, we have the huge number of sacrifices. Um, I don't know if you thought about that. If, if you sort of saw all those at a, at a sale yard, you'd, you know, you, you wouldn't see the end of them. Uh, thousands and thousands of animals, but. Our thanksgiving, our sacrifice is, as, as Paul explains in Romans 12, um, because of the mercies that we have experienced at God's hand, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to God. That's our spiritual worship. It says there, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of his mercies, all that he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. So there will be uh, the joy of serving God. There will be the feast then in verse 65, um, the feast of a glad uh, heart, Here. Verse 65 says, Then Solomon, all Israel, celebrated the festival of shelters in the presence of the Lord our God. A large congregation had gathered from as far away as Lebo Hamath in the north and the brook of Egypt in the south. The celebration went on for 14 days in all, seven days for the dedication of the altar and seven days for the festival of shelters. It wasn't a mean feast. Um, it involved the whole nation from the north to the south, and it reminds us again of our great feast with Christ in Revelation, the, the marriage feast of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Um, and so we are joyful and glad of heart for the goodness shown by God, a shadow of the goodness and forgiveness we have experienced due to God's grace of, 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 of uh, what we have experienced in our King, in our salvation and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so with the 72 sent out by Jesus in Luke 10, they came back rejoicing that the the spirits had been uh, obedient to them. They had cast out evil spirits. And Jesus said, don't rejoice because of evil spirits, that they obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. So we rejoice, not because of anything we are or anything we do, but because our names are written in heaven. That's why we rejoice. So, in conclusion, what we can say, the basis of our prayer, why do we pray? Because God has promised and He has promised to hear us. And he, we pray because He has involved us in what He is doing. What is the focus of our prayer? Hallowed be your name and your kingdom come. With thanksgiving, we focus on the consummation of what is ours in Jesus, on the glory of God, on being conformed to the image of His Son, and on forgiveness for our failures as we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, casting our anxieties on him. And the result is that we, thankf- we are thankfully rejoicing in God's great goodness, our names written in heaven as we await the consummation of all God's purposes, which is the focus of our prayers. And we look forward to that time then. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. That is, chaos had gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Amen.